This is from John 15, um, verses one all the way through to eight, if you wanna follow along with me. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, oh, sorry. <laughs> you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branch, branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How good. So nice to be here on Sunday afternoon with you guys, church fam. I'm feeling a bit like, um, what's the word? I'm in holiday mode. Is everyone else in holiday mode? Yeah, great. Okay, so that's my preface. If that means um, that I get more excited than I usually do, it's because I'm relaxed. And if it means I'm a bit slower than I usually am, it's because I'm relaxed. Uh, new year, new life, hey? How good. Um, guys, today I'm talking on something that's actually been something that God's been doing in my heart for the last few years. And the struggle I had in preparing this sermon over the break was just this sense that, Flip, how do I, how do I cull the stuff that's going to be in here, because today we're talking about rhythms, and rhythms of life, and habits, and practicing the way of Jesus. And this has been something that God's been putting in my heart, and in my mind, literally for the last five years. And my life is, is literally different, uh, because of what God's done in my heart and mind over the last few years, because of the kind of thing we want to talk about in this series. But to get there, I've got a little opening illustration. There's an op-ed writer for the New York Times, David Brooks. If you like culture and politics and social commentary, you'll have read this guy before. And in 2015, he wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in that book, he opens with a reflection on a contrast between two things. Uh, one thing that he calls resume virtues, and the other thing that he calls eulogy virtues. Now, resume virtues, they're the attributes and the characteristics and the skills that look good on your resume. Uh, it might be your experience, it might be a degree, maybe it's your ability to execute a plan or lead. They're resume virtues, they make you employable. On the other hand, he contrasts that with eulogy virtues. And eulogy virtues, they're the attributes, the characteristics, and the skills that you have that you want someone upon your deathbed to share about you. It might be your ability to love, it might be your integrity, it might be the fact that you keep your word, Maybe it's your kindness. Ultimately, it's your character. It's a eulogy virtue. It's the kind of thing you'd want someone to share about you on your deathbed. The kind of thing that a loved one would see. The kind of thing that a loved one would remember when they remember who you are. And each of us, we've got the ability to develop resume virtues, David Brooks says, and eulogy virtues. But here's the reflection he makes. He says, we all intuit that eulogy virtues are more valuable than resume virtues, but that this world prioritizes resume virtues. How? Think of the questions that we ask one another. 
We ask questions like, what do you do? Where do you work? What degree do you have? What networks do you have available to you? Education is geared this way. Social forums are geared this way. Public forums are geared this way. The workplace and the career center and marketplace are geared this way. And the reason that our world prioritizes resume virtues is because we live in a culture that works with the assumption that what we do is more important than who we are. We live in a culture that works with the assumption that what we do is more important than who we are. And there are a whole host of problems with this. It means that people sacrifice their character on the altar of their career, get decades and decades into climbing the corporate ladder and crack, because they didn't have the character to sustain the pressure that they found themselves in with more and more responsibility. It means people end up having a long list of skills that make them attractive to a HR department in some big firm, but make people allergic to them whenever they consider whether they want to share life together, friendship, romance. But the biggest problem is it means that outwardly people might gain the whole world when they prioritize resume virtues, but lose their soul. And it works against the greatest goal that God has for our lives. In the Christian story, the greatest goal that God has for every human is to become like Jesus. And when we say this, we're not saying that we need to become like first century Jewish carpenters who find ourselves adopting the trade of our father, you know, living on the Sea of Galilee, this sort of backwater no man's place. We're not saying that. We're saying that Jesus modeled perfectly what it means to live in God's presence for the sake of the world. That was Jesus' mission, and he nailed it. To be a person of love. His character, his mission, his temperament, and his outlook, it was all aimed towards and fueled by God. And so when we say that the greatest goal that any human can have is to become like Jesus, we're actually saying that our primary task in life is to be transformed into what he did so well to live in God's presence for the sake of the world. To live in God's presence for the sake of the world. Which means, long story short, who we're becoming is way more important than what we do. Doesn't mean what we do doesn't matter. If you want to take my word for it, go to a series that we preached last year on work and the Christian worldview. Work is important, it's valuable. But who we're becoming, what our character is, priceless. Dallas Willard, who writes so well on these things, he said it like this in his book, The Great Omission. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And the thing I want to put in our minds today is, do you want to live the life of the kingdom into every corner of your existence? That's the offer. So here's the question I want to kick off our New Year's with. Why do we struggle to prioritize our transformation? And how do we prioritize our transformation? And our answer to that is this series, Rhythms. Rhythms, the habits of the way. So we've got this conviction here at New Life. A lot of people 
when they think about Christianity, they think of it as a system of belief. That when you become a Christian, you just adopt a whole bunch of ideas about reality and God and the world. That you, you get this new worldview that you intellectually subscribe to. And on one level, that's true. There is a whole host of ideas in the Christian worldview that change your outlook on life. They change your system of belief. But here's something I've learned. Christianity is not just a worldview to believe. It's a way of life to apprentice in. It involves not just adopting new ideas about reality. It involves following after Jesus with new practices, new habits, and ultimately what we're calling an umbrella term, rhythms, a new way of life. And it's these practices and habits and rhythms which over time are the things which propel us, index us, and tilt us towards the life of Jesus here and now. That's what they do. So for this series, we want to talk about spiritual formation and how our rhythms in life either help our spiritual formation or hinder it. This week, I want to give you a theology of rhythms. And to do that, I just want to sit in the first verse of the passage we just read from John 15, a famous passage of teaching from Jesus. The context behind John 15, if you're not familiar with it, it, it sheds a whole host more sort of significance around the words of Jesus as he shares them. John's Gospel, it's split into two main parts. There's some other smaller parts in it amongst all of it, but it's split into two main parts. Uh, the first part is Jesus' public ministry from chapters 1 through to 12, and the second part is Jesus' private ministry from chapters 13 to, I actually can't remember how many chapters are in John's Gospel, but I'm sure you'll forgive me, to the end, his public ministry. Uh, his private ministry, sorry. And it is public ministry... He's interacting with Jewish institutions and feasts, and he performs miracles, he teaches about himself, and he sort of presents himself as, as the guy who's come in answer to the long-awaited sort of hope of Israel. Israel was hoping for a king, someone to do away with evil, someone to rid them of the oppression that they experienced so that they might be free to worship and be all that God had made them to be. He was demonstrating in his public ministry that he was the Jewish Messiah but with an idea of the kingdom that they weren't prepared for. And it's this tension which creates this sort of stir for the Jews because they wanted the Messiah to be the one they expected to be, not someone who challenges their categories. And it's this tension which propels the Gospel of John forward because the Jewish elite and the religious elite and those kind of crew, they want to kill Jesus because of the way he embodies what they thought to be the Messiah. They don't want him and his vocation and understanding of himself and kingship to pollute the Jewish religion. And so John's gospel has punctuated throughout it all these lines like, hey, they tried to seize him to kill him, but Jesus escaped because, and John's got this phrase, he says, his hour had not yet come. But then John 13 verse 1 comes along and it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and so he starts preparing which, in other words, is sort of like, I guess, a catchphrase and a technical term in John's Gospel to say, Jesus knew that his death was imminent. And so what's he do? He goes from the public eye of doing ministry and steps into a private room with his disciples. And you've got to picture this. You've got the threat of death. You've got this sense that the kingdom of God's breaking in, and it's going to break in in and through those who claim to follow you. And so he takes people into a room to give them one last final word, a sort of sending off speech. And what does he say? What would you say? Here's what Jesus basically says to his followers. He says, make your home in God. 
all the threat of death, all the expectation that the kingdom of God is going to literally turn the world upside down in and through these people. And he says, make your home in God. He says, 15 verse 1, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. In the eight verses that we read, that Ella read for us before, the word remain, it's actually used 10 times. It's sort of this repetitive refrain that if, if we're to take anything away from this passage of scripture, anything away from this private discourse that Jesus is engaging with his disciples, it's remain, remain, remain. Continually come back to Jesus. Different translations put it differently. Remain in me, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me, make your home in me. When Kath and I, um, we first got married, we moved overseas to England and um, Probably hear, you're probably sick of hearing that by now, but when we moved, we were like, oh man, we don't need to buy any furniture because we know we'll be back in Australia. We were sort of mobile, you know, not quite grey nomads, but we felt like it. We never really settled in. But when we moved back to Australia, we, we knew we'd be making it our home. We grew up here, we always longed to be back here. And so we started to buy furniture. We started to set up our house. We started to make our home. And that's what it means to make a home. To do active things to prepare to stay. To do active things so you might be comfortable there. We made it comfortable because we wanted, to be, we wanted it to be our place of comfort. It was our home. One of the questions I love asking people, and I did it just before, um, is it's the first question I ask people. I don't know why I do this. Kath just pulled me up on it, but I say, where do you live? I said that to someone younger recently, and they were like, I don't know if I can tell you that. And I was like, of course you can't. But the question I, well, sometimes, you know, the alternate question I'll ask is, hey, where's home for you? I don't know why I ask that. But in my mind, it's just because the land we live in, the home that we make, and the place that we return to is just so fundamental to us. It's where we live. It's where we return to. It's where we call home. Let me ask you, where's home for you? Just think of all the sentiment that arises in you when you think about home. Maybe you've gone on a long trip and you had to come home and you know, you're getting closer and closer to home and you pull into a street that you're familiar with, you get to your driveway and there's just this sense of burden from the trip falls off, you know? It's home, it's comfortable. It's where you've chosen to dwell. And here's what Jesus is asking of his disciples. Can you live in me? Can you make your home in me? Can you do everything you do in me? Will you remain in me? Because here's the promise. If you do, you'll bear much fruit. If you do, you'll become like Jesus. If you do, you'll be continually transformed to have his character, his mission, his temperament. If you do, his outlook will permeate you from the inside out and for the sake of the world. If you do, you'll know the life that is truly life. And if you do, you'll experience the kingdom of heaven breaking into you and through you. That's the vision. It's Jesus' vision of spiritual formation. It, it looks like making your home in him. And before I proceed, I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, to Christians who've been walking the journey, this will come as a challenging word, maybe an exciting word. But for those in the room who aren't Christians who are like, man, this is strange. 
Why are you talking about character formation and mission and being like this first century Jewish carpenter who you also think is God? And we would just say, hey, just, just try this on. Try this on as a thought experiment. The Apostle Paul, in one of the letters that he wrote to his protege, Timothy, he said that the life we have in Jesus, this is an exact quote, but he said the life that we get available to us in Jesus is the life that is truly life. And maybe you find yourself at the start of a new year, looking for a fresh start, looking for new life. And I would just invite you to consider the possibility that this could be it, that apprenticing after Jesus isn't just good for the world, it's good in itself, and it's good for us. And so suspend your suspicion. But here's the question. How the heck do we remain in God? Right? Like it sounds nice, but if you are to walk away, flip. What are you going to do? How are you going to act? Who are you going to be? That's my question. And the early Christian answer to that question was actually quite simple. They picked up on the fact that Jesus was using an agricultural image. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Character is the fruit. And so the imagery that should come to mind, particularly if you're a cultural connoisseur, it, it's a vineyard, right? And if you've ever been to a vineyard, there's a few things there. Go to any winery. There's a vine. There's branches. There's fruit. But in order for the plant to flourish, it needs a supporting structure. It needs what we call a trellis. A trellis is a wooden structure that gives the vine something to grow on, and it does two things. It protects it from harm, and it propels it towards flourishing. And it's the same with the Christian life. For us to abide in Jesus, we need a trellis that gives us structure which protects and propels us. We need a structure that guards our habits and guides our lives. This is what the ancients called a rule of life. Rule, it comes from the Latin word for trellis. And a rule of life was a, it's sort of like a way of reflecting on the concrete actions of your day-to-day -day life. And it's asking this question about all those things. Does this either help my relationship with God or does it hinder my relationship with God? And rhythms, I'll be honest, it's just our attempt to sort of update that language a bit. It's our attempt to bring it into the 21st century and sort of do away with the cultural baggage that surrounds the word rule. See, all of us have rhythms to life, all of us. You don't need to be a Christian to have rhythms to your life. Your rhythms are your habits, your disciplines, your calendar, your ability to check your phone when it dings you, and your patterns of thought. It's waking up at a certain time or maybe sleeping in till a certain time. It's what you do when you first get home after a busy day of work. Maybe you get a glass of wine or maybe you connect with your spouse. It's what you do when you put your head on the pillow at night and the first thought that comes to your mind. It's as practical as maybe doing meal prep on a Sunday. All of us have rhythms to our life, each and every one of us. And the scary thing about rhythm is two things. One, often the rhythms we adopt, we don't choose. They choose us. We just fall into them. Maybe because of the culture that we sit in and therefore have absorbed, or maybe because of the phone that we've got in our pocket, or maybe because of the family that we grew up in, or the way that we've been formed by our sort of family of origin, those kinds of things. Often the rhythms we adopt in life, we don't choose, we fall into them. To give you an example, each of us, I mentioned it just now, each of us have a little device in our pocket. And that thing, when it dings, it's given you a rhythm. And when it dings, it is particularly programmed to steal your attention and keep it. And whenever you respond to that ding, you're letting it structure your life. Maybe for better, maybe for worse. But you didn't choose that rhythm. It, it kind of chose you. 
some very sophisticated algorithms <laughs> chose us. The second thing about rhythms is they're not just something that we do. Often they're, they're things that do something to us. Every rhythm, every habit, every practice, they all, for better or worse, they carry us toward the image of a good life. They index us and change us and shape us and propel us towards a particular image in life. Again, think of your smartphone. When you sit there on your phone, you're seeing the world through this sleek interface that has been curated by an algorithm to give you just enough entertainment, just enough polarizing news stories, and, and just enough, what's the word I listed here? Uh, just enough dopamine, there's the word, to keep you glued. And slowly but surely, through this rhythm, you become someone who, this is a 21st century phenomenon, you become, you, you become someone who's always on their phone. Your rhythms and your practices, often we fall into them, and they're not just things we do, they often do something to us. They shape us, they make us become something. The rhythms we fall into us shape us in profound ways, which means the question we need to ask ourselves here this afternoon is not whether we're being formed into something, but what it is that we're being formed into. And the point of this series is just to provide like a meaningful framework within which we can contemplate that question. See, modern people, we tend to think that the most formative parts of our lives are sort of the big decisions we make. You know, it's a new year. We often think about the big decisions we want to make in a new year when the new year comes around. Things like, who will I marry? Where will I live? Will I take that job? These are the ways that modern people think about what the most formative things in their life are. But actually, it's the ordinary things in our lives that shape us most profoundly. It's the repetitive, the habitual, and the ordinary parts of our lives that are the most formative. Annie Dillard, she's a novelist and a writer from the States, and she put it like this. She said, how you spend your days is how you'll spend your life. That might shock some of us. What's she saying? She's saying that who you are every day is who you are every day. The rhythms you adopt and are uncritical about and unintentional with, that is you. No matter what big decisions that you make in life, you carry the person that's formed by the small things into that big decision. Which is why people say, hey, you make a big decision to get married, it's not gonna fix you. Why? Because you make small choices every single day that makes you the certain kind of person that's either gonna be better or worse for the spouse that you choose. It's the small things in life, the everyday things in life that have the most power to form us. And you can go for day after day, week after week, month after month and year after year, wondering why it is that the decision, the big decision you made two years ago to not be that kind of person anymore still is you. Why? You've been unintentional with your rhythms. You've, you've fallen into some rhythms. You've let things choose themselves for you. And again, the point of this series is just to put on our map the fact that we can talk about our rhythms, shape our rhythms, and choose to inhabit rhythms that will beget the kind of life that Jesus in his kingdom invites us into. Be intentional with your rhythms. Now, as I say this, I can sort of preempt three objections. Whenever I talk to people about this, they always say things like, Alex, you're such a type A person. Of course you'd like structure. What about me, you know? Some people say, oh, Alex, Christianity's about grace. We don't need to do anything to actually, you know, inhabit the life that Jesus invites for us to have. And people say, man, isn't the Holy Spirit, isn't it the Holy Spirit's job to do the work of transformation in our lives? Like, you're talking in such a way as if you think that this is all human prerogative, a human decision, a human effort. 
And I would just want to respond to each of those things really briefly as I finish. What would I say to someone who thinks, man, I thought Christianity was a religion of grace based on relationship and love? I'd simply say that the way that God invites us to be formed is by participating with him. And that is the Holy Spirit fuel in our lives. Dallas Willard, again, I feel like I could quote him for every point I make in this sermon, but he said, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And so when we're talking about being spiritually formed and thinking intentionally about the rhythms we inhabit to follow after Jesus, we're not talking about the love that God has for us. Our ability to change our rhythms and be intentional with them, it doesn't change God's feelings towards us. It just changes the way we feel God's feelings towards us. It changes our ability to experience the love of God. Why? Because we grow step by step by step into the kind of person who's just so aware when they wake up, when they lie down, when they go to lunch, when they get home from work, that God is love and he's here. We're not talking about earning anything. We're just talking about taking the grace that God's given us and walking through in fear and trembling, working out the salvation that God by grace has given us. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. We need to be intentional. Some people will give me like a practical objection. They'll say, Alex, you just don't understand my life. Alex, you, you know, you, you, you've got no kids, so you just don't understand how busy it can get. And I'll be honest, Kath and I, for Christmas, we got to spend time with family, and there's like a few nieces in the family now, and look, I don't understand firsthand, but I, I get a window. Kids are wild <laughs> in a great way. There's a lot of work to be done. And you say, I just don't have time. You seem to be asking me to do more Christian things, to say yes to more Christian things. And here's what I want to say. The whole point of this first sermon is to give you a framework by which to think through your rhythms, not to ask you to do more things. Because yeah. here's what you'll realize when you reflect on your life. You might be doing too much. You might have said yes to too many things. And the point of thinking intentionally about our rhythms is to give you the framework with which to say a meaningful no, so you can say a, a blessed yes to the things that matter. Maybe you're doing too much. I get the practical objection. I'm not asking to add more yeses of Christian things to your life. I'm asking you to reflect on your life, to be intentional this year. And the third objection is, man, I thought that the way that the Holy Spirit works is just for us to encounter him in worship and he transforms us in sort of this like download-esque kind of way. And I, I just wanna say, I think you're right. Let's do that as a church. That's not the only way. God's mode of operation is to partner with us, to condescend his power to our freedom and to give it over in as much as we would be receptacles of it. We're not talking about stepping into a job description that's above our pay grade when we talk about spiritual formation. We're talking about living all of our life before the face of God and this is what the Holy Spirit longs to permeate be before and after for the sake of our flourishing. God does encounter and transform people miraculously, but he also does it in a mundane way too. And here's the point I wanna finish this response with. If you can't encounter God in the mundane, you might not encounter him at all. If you can't find God in the everyday, you probably won't find him at all because we live so much of our lives in the everyday. Sunday, in worship, for an hour, and you would limit the power of God and the presence of the Spirit to work miraculously in your life just there, 
and he wants the buffet of your life. And my heart as the pastor of this church is to invite us into both. It's to say, I want to encounter God with you, alongside you in in the miraculous and powerful. But I also want to experience his presence in the mundane. Imagine if we come to church each week in celebration and we go to our Monday in formation. Imagine if we come each Sunday and we're just so expectant and excited to encounter God in worship. And we go home thinking the same. The form might change. God doesn't. And the goal that he has doesn't. We need to be intentional. This is how we participate in the life that Jesus has so freely given us. This is the way that God invites us to play our part. One last quote, and I just want to invite the band to jump on up behind me. Willard says this. He says, Our part is through specific and appropriate activities to yield the plastic substance of which we are made to the ways of that new life which is imparted to us by the Spirit. We are to take this task with the utmost seriousness, since no one, not even God himself, will do it for us. That is the meaning of our freedom and our responsibility. I wonder if you might stand just as I leave you with a closing thought. My hope this afternoon, even as I've sort of, I've basically, I feel like I've taken each of your lives and, you know, put them on a screen for each of you. That might scare some of you. And I would just say with the most gentlest of heart, good. What an awesome way to kick off the new year. Who are you becoming this year? Some of you might be excited and you'll go home and you'll journal and you'll think of every category of life and everything you did last year. And I'll just say to you, slow down, there's time. And some of you are like, man, he he could have spoken a bit slower today. I didn't understand that point. And I just said, that's okay, we've got a whole series here. But it's a new year. We're kicking off a new year today. This is our first Sunday for 2022. And with New Year's come New Year's resolutions. I've got a couple. I think they're good. I think they're helpful. Some people right now might have financial goals for this year. Some people right now might have health-related goals, relationship-related goals. They might have random personal challenges like learning to do a backflip off YouTube. That was literally my dream growing up. Never got there. Maybe you want to sell a Rubik's Cube this year. All of these are good things because they encourage us to be intentional with our lives, to actually do something with our lives. But here's the contrast I hope you feel today. There's a difference between what you do and who you're becoming. There's a difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. There's a difference between doing the right things externally and achieving things in the corporate world, the business world, the family world, the relational world, all the worlds that seem external to us and who you are in the depths of your soul and who you feel yourself to be and who you're becoming. It's the most important thing about you. I don't even, I'm not even scared about the fact that like I run the risk of being too unbalanced in saying that. Like I care about work, I care about your Monday, but who you're becoming is the most important thing about you. Which means the best thing you can do this year is not lose five kilos. Maybe that's me. It's not save for the house deposit. It, it's not keep a schedule or a calendar or time manage. 
It's to be transformed. It's to reflect on your rhythms and be intentional with the person you're becoming as you apprentice after Jesus. That's the best thing you can do this year. It's to think through your rhythms and be intentional with your becoming. We want to unpack rhythms. So tonight, I've just provided you with a vision cast for what this could be in your life. It's been a bit more theoretical. Next week, I want to think practically with you about what our rhythms could be. I want to ask some questions with you. Get us to reflect literally in the service about our life, our abiding in Jesus, how our mission for God is going, how our relationships with others are going, how our work is going, and put it all on the platter of this larger question, is it tilting me towards Christ-likeness? I want to do that next week with you. And the week after, one of our hopes for this series on a larger sort of five-year vision is that each year we readdress rhythms and that we start to speak into spiritual disciplines as a church. And so when you're asking, when you're looking at your life and you say, I'm going to say no to that in my life, we want to provide you with an idea of what spiritual disciplines you might be able to say yes to. And so for the second, third and fourth week, I should say, um, we're going to talk about the discipline of celebration and we're going to talk about the discipline of Bible study. And over the years, we'll talk about a whole host of things. We'll talk about fasting. We'll talk about feasting. We'll talk about reading the Bible devotionally. We'll talk about silence and solitude. We'll talk about prayer. We'll talk about all the things that God invites us, sort of like a coach invites his, you know, soccer players to entertain. Drills. Drills for the life of a Christian. And we'll start to speak into them, that you might have them before your imagination to think through how you might apprentice better after Jesus. I mentioned before that I want this church to be a place that feels the mundane presence of God, or the presence of God in the mundane, a bit awkward. <laughs> but I also want us to encounter the miraculous power of God on a Sunday. And so we just want to invite you, if you want to receive prayer this afternoon, just come forward. I'll be over here, Lauren will be over there, and we'd love to just pray for you. Maybe God's put it on your heart just to completely be intentional this year. That's my prayer. Maybe you're confused and you're scared. Or maybe you just want to sit in silence before God with another person. Maybe you want to encounter Him. And so come forward for prayer. Another thing to put on your radar, I know I'm talking too much, I'll stop, but another thing to put on your radar is Lawrence put together this awesome uh, sort of prayer schedule and rhythm for the month of January. Um, and it's just a little prayer rhythm that we can encounter morning, noon, and night. She's got more information about it, but if you want to start off this year in the presence of God, in your morning, noon, and night. Go chat to Lauren after the service, uh, and she'll be able to fill you in with more details. Beautiful vision. I'll be participating myself. But why don't we pray? Just invite you to close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, just ask this question. God, how are my rhythms shaping me for better or worse? And is there something that you want to tell me right now? about what I can say no to this year and what you want me to say yes to. Father God, thank you so much. You don't override our will to make us robots who look like Jesus. You invite and you gently persuade us apprentice after the life that's truly life. And I ask God, this year, would we be a different people? 
would we just lay bare our lives before you and come in absolute humility and surrender and say, God, what do you want to do with my life this year? And for those of us who need to make big decisions this year, Lord, I ask for your wisdom. But for all of us, God, I ask for your power and your courage and your resilience to make the small everyday decisions that tilt us towards becoming like you. Friends, I just invite you, hold out your hands. If there's something on your heart right now you just wanna give to God, I just invite you, give that to the Lord. Maybe it's your disappointment in yourself. Maybe it's your fear. Maybe it's your anxiety at the possibility that God could invite you to participate this way. And I just say, offer it to Him humbly. Because failure in this world, in this particular exercise, it's got nothing to do with guilt. It just means reflecting again and thinking through what's helpful for the next season. Father, thank you for your presence here with us. Would we encounter you now? In Jesus' name, amen.